Tonight's speaker is Venerable Tutan Choki from Higher River Buddhist Centre. Next Friday's speaker will be Drew Bellamy, former BSWA president, with a talk entitled Dharma and the Dinosaurs. I'm not sure how he's going to link it to turning points, but that will be <laughs> the very interesting part. Please note that Friday night speakers during rains will not be live streamed, so please come along in person to listen to the speakers. Please join Be Quiet and KFC for some special rains events on the first Saturday of each month, starting tomorrow, 4th of August, 5 to 6 p.m., with kindful drawing. Compassion and mindfulness combined with creativity. All ages welcome. There will not be any Be Quiet or KFC events on during rains. The introduction to meditation series for August starts tomorrow, Saturday 5th August, 3 to 4, 15 p.m. Ajahn Brahm's 72nd birthday party and auction takes place on Sunday, 6th of August, 12.15pm at Jana Grove. They will be fundraising for Anukampa Project, lunch dana as usual in Bodhiyana on this day, but Ajahn will be fasting. On Monday, 7th of August, Ajahn will not be fasting. And after dana, any auction items remaining from Sunday will be auctioned. The book fundraiser for Newbury Monastery called The Beauty of Silence, books of beautiful charcoal drawings of BSWA sites by Nigara Raman Yake, with handwritten descriptions by Ajahn Brahm and handwritten introduction by Ajahn Brahmali, will be sold for cash only donation at Bodhiyana Monastery from Sunday, 6 August. Kusula Hermitage has an entry to reigns and ceremony here at Dhammaloka on Sunday, 13th of August from 10 a.m. onwards. During rains, the Dharma Loka Library will be open Friday 6 to 7.30 p.m., Saturday 2.30 to 3, and 4 to 4.30 p.m., and Sundays 9 to 11.30 a.m., only when the Dharma school classes are on. The library will no longer be open on Mondays, both during and after rains. On Mondays, we will have a volunteer available for visits, inquiries and memberships. Armadale Meditation Group, which meets on Zoom, continues to meet on Tuesdays during rains with guest lay speakers. Please refer to their website for details. The Australian Sangha Association have organised a Zoom meeting on the voice referendum with new, no Pearson on 10th of August at 5.30pm Perth time. Please refer to BSWA website for more information. 
Also, please refer to our website and notice boards to review the announcements you have just heard. Before we begin the introduction, let me just introduce Honourable Cherky in detail. Honourable Cherky is the resident teacher at Higher Griver Buddhist Centre. Ordained in 2006 by Lama Zompa Rinpoche, she has held several senior posts at FPMT centres in Australia and international positions within the FPMT. Before coming to Perth, Honourable Cherky was Spiritual Programme Coordinator at the FPMT Centre in Sydney, Vajrayana Institute, for 10 years. And in 2018, she was appointed the resident Western teacher at Chen Rezik Institute and FPMT Centre in Queensland. May I now invite Venerable Cherky to lead the guided meditation. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'd just like to start with the Shakyamuni Buddha mantra, even you know, from the Tibetan version. <laughs> so we can just think we're in the presence of, of the Buddha and bringing that presence into our mind. Sitting as we are, comfortably, feeling well grounded to the earth below, that the earth is coming up to support you, providing a stable foundation for meditation, and that sense of connection of the earth elements in your body, through the pelvis, through the legs, through the feet, really Feeling that support, feeling that connection to the outer earth element, providing a stable, secure foundation for meditation. And then the spine, long and straight, not forced, just in its natural posture with the pelvis slightly tilted forward. And let your muscles around that just soften, be relaxed, particularly around the face where we hold a lot of tension due to the senses being concentrated there. 
So just let the eyes rest in the sockets, no move. They can take a break. Just sort of park them in the garage. Or park them in the sockets. <laughs> let them just rest. Come down from the top of the head, around the face, around the forehead, around the brow, softening, relaxing. Bring your awareness to the natural breath in your body, just in its natural rhythm, doing a great job. Your body knows how to breathe itself. Or with the breath out, softening, relaxing any tightness in the muscles that have built up throughout the week maybe or throughout the day, around the jaw, softening around the mouth, around the throat. And just gradually make your way down the shoulders, releasing the heavy burden. So the arms can just he rest heavily in your lap or wherever they are, in the chairs, wherever's comfortable. And your belly full, fully relaxed. Maybe you've had dinner and so you can just let it be full and relaxed. <laughs> Feeling the weight of the pelvis on the seat, relinquishing that weight to gravity. Softening the legs with the breath out, releasing, relaxing, letting go. Continuing to let go all the way the end of the breath out, anything disturbing you, anything uncomfortable in the body, if it's too uncomfortable, move your position. But otherwise we can tolerate a little bit of discomfort. And then with the breath in, bringing in the fresh air, bringing in the oxygen, slightly tightening the focus so that bringing the body and mind to a state of balance bringing our attentiveness to the breath to a state of balance, releasing with the breath out and refreshing, slightly tightening our focus with the breath in, finding your own balance. As the Buddha said, not too tight, not too loose. Bringing the body and mind into a state of stillness, equanimity, and simply resting your awareness in the natural rhythm of your breath. Helping your mind to settle into the space of the body, the body relaxed, so the invitation to the mind to settle the body and mind together in each moment, which is so rare. Most of the time our body's sitting here, but our mind's flying off elsewhere. Inviting them to be present <coughs> in each moment of the breath.
for withdrawing our attention of the senses, the sounds around us, just allow them to be as they are, but we're not attending to those. We're settling our mind as mo more and more into the space of the body, into the space of each moment of the breath arising. We turn around to the breath out, all the way out to the end of the breath, staying present, not jumping ahead. And then there's a natural stillness. And the next breath arises, just like the waves come in on the shore. You don't need to take a breath. The body breathes itself. Staying present each moment by moment is a fresh moment, a new moment of breath. A new moment to savor life. we settle into this space, we can feel the space itself settle, the space where many, many times, many people, yourselves and others have meditated and gathered this calm, peaceful energy that lingers in the space long after meditation. Providing a conducive external conditions. My body providing the internal conditions for then the mind to settle more and more deeply. And as you do, still focusing on the breath, bring your awareness to the breath in the abdomen down in your body, but bringing the energy down as far as you can. Not forcing anything, just that gentle rise and fall of the abdomen is like the gentle rise and fall of um, a tide on a pristine, still mountain lake. And you can, you know, the cool, clear, fresh water of a mountain lake and that sense of stillness as you breathe in and out, a gentle rise and fall in a natural rhythm in sync with nature.
time that we notice your mind getting distracted, being distracted by sounds, getting distracted by <laughs> your mind itself or by the body. Firstly, the fact that we notice that is something to celebrate. And then relax the energy around that. Don't have to worry if it's a dis you know, distracting thought or <coughs> sound or, or whatever. Just release that energy, relax. And then refresh your attention with the breath in, bringing your attention back, just simply focusing on the rise and fall of the breath in the abdomen, nothing else, letting everything dissolve into that space. Again, those distracting thoughts or even a sense of dullness, it's evening time, it's dry weather. These can be like, you know, the um, ripples on the surface of the lake churning up a bit of muddiness and so forth. So then we can sort of settle the mind down more deeply into the depths where it's completely clear beyond all the surface, you know, activity like that with our mind, to invite our mind to settle more deeply, to be more present simply with the breath, that being dwelling in the breath, savoring each moment of the breath in and out, that continuity of attention of each moment, not forcing, simply resting gently with the breath.
continue to focus on the breath, maintaining whatever sense of stability, stillness. Refining the attention, so inviting the mind to settle more deeply. So that you place your attention just at the upper lip, the below the nostrils, and observe the comings and goings of the breath in terms of whatever sensations you notice there, not following the breath all the way in, just resting at the opening of the nostrils where the outside breath enters the body becomes, outside air enters the body becomes fresh. Maybe slightly cooler as you breathe in, warmer as you breathe out, varying sensations, tickling sensations, the sensations of the passage of the breath, whether it's smooth or even throughout, or whether it's more at the beginning, more at the end, you know, um, more in the middle. But just simply being aware, we're not changing anything about the breath, we're refining our attention to notice more clearer details of the sensations of the breath at the nostrils. Keeping a spacious open mind, not tightening, not borrowing the brow, it won't help. Everything spacious, relaxed in the body, check out from time to time if necessary. And fine tuning that awareness to the opening of the nostrils, let it set, settle down more deeply. And so we'll continue on in silence for a few minutes.
Okay, so uh, turning points. <coughs> so um, I want to first of all say congratulations to <laughs> the Buddhist Society of Western Australia for being around for 50 years. How amazing. Everything's a celebration, Sunday. And um, <coughs> it's so wonderful. Since the time I've, I've, been, I've been here just over 18 months in Perth, um, new to WA, but when I'm out and about, people say, are you from Nolamara? And I go, actually, no. <laughs> but now at least I can say I've been there. <laughs> it's my first time here, so I'm really delighted to be here. So thanks for the invitation. And uh, <coughs> um, so as Ariel said in her introduction, uh, you know, to I'm part of FPMT, the Foundation for the Preservation of the Mahayana Tradition. Um, and uh, so our centres around the world are also the older ones celebrating 50 years. Chenrezig Institute, which was the first of our centres set up outside of India and Nepal, uh, celebrates 50 years next year. So um, we'll be having a big celebration as well. <laughs> and it's, it gives me confidence that, you know, um, I'm, I'm very aware that the role VSWA has played in the state that everyone's really aware of Buddhism as a result and um, that's really wonderful thing not that we're out to turn everybody into Buddhists or anything like that you know being a Buddhist is an inner being but nonetheless um, that people recognize um, recognize um, you know Buddhism in WA is because of VSWA I think so really great <coughs> um, so I think uh, part of the topic is, uh, is me talking about a few turning points in my life, but also I want to refer to the Buddhist teachings as well. <coughs> so no surprise that one of the biggest turning points in my life was to become ordained. <laughs> um, <coughs> so just, um, I guess I was, you know, when, um, when I was a child, I was, going, I was brought up Catholic, I went to a Catholic school, but even before I went to school, you know, and the people say, and what do you want to be when you grow up? And my little four-year-old said, I want to be a nun. And um, I remember I lived in um, New South Wales in a, a much smaller place than it is now called Raymond Terrace, but it was um, much smaller then. <laughs> anyway, uh, we, I remember going to the Rec Revision store with my mother because we hired a television at that point. We often didn't have TV, but that time we had and she and she and uh, said to Mr. Retrovision, you know, he said, "What do you want to be when you grow up?" And I said, "I want to be a Buddhist nun." Uh, no, not a Buddhist nun. I didn't know about Buddhism then. I want to be a nun. And he says, "Oh, you'll change your mind." Well, you know, you've got to go forward a few decades <laughs> before I actually encounter the Buddhist teachings. I was at university, or that I remember, I was at university, and um, there were these two. Lamas, um, and they were talking about establishing this place up north, which I realised later was Chenrezig Institute, and I immediately wanted to go. But I knew nothing about Buddhism, and I thought, 
What good are monks to the world? They sit on top of mountains and meditate. What good is that? Well, a far greater good than I was doing at the time. <laughs> Just let me say. <laughs> um, and so, you know, it wasn't until much later that, you know, oh, well, not too much later that I actually started a medi regular meditation practice. I started first through TM and then um, through Buddhism and, you know, a uh, few more years that I really um, was settled uh, in my Buddhist practice in terms of at least doing meditation and a few more years before I actually started seriously studying, which I've now been doing for, I don't know, 20 years. Continue uh, The tradition that I'm in um, within Tibetan Buddhism, Dilukpa, is, is known to be the study tradition. So it's not that we don't meditate, but we do a lot of philosophical study as well, um, which suits me because I was um, an academic. So <laughs> I'm still feeling like I'm still an academic, um, but as much as I can putting the Buddha's teachings into practice. But when I did... Um, request ordination. Of course, my, my teacher, Geshe Samton at Vajrayana Institute, said, well, you've been, you know, after having an interview with him, you've been thinking about it long enough. Because what had happened was, about every five years, I'd have this, right, now's the time, now's the time. And then I ran in the opposite direction. Um, until now was the time, and I couldn't think of anything else. So it was a big change in my life. I had to go to work. I was working in New South Wales University, um, in Nuragili, the indigenous unit, and I had to go to my boss and say, um, I need some time off. I'm going to New Zealand. I'm going to ordain as a Buddhist nun. They didn't even know I was Buddhist because you don't go around telling people you're Buddhist. You know, this is not part of our practice. And so, so she was like, a Buddhist nun who ne lives, near lives near me and I see her walking her dog, so cool, you know, okay, all right. And um, anyway, so that happened. Um, I thought before I ordained that, you know, I didn't really know what it would be like in some ways, but I thought, okay, I'm renouncing the world. So I'd been uh, um, involved very much in um, an activist. Um, when I went to university, I was involved in what was then um, Movement Against Uranium Mining, Friends of the Earth, um, Women's Liberation, um, LGBTIQA plus as it is now, um, and thinking, I've got to give all that up. So in my first 18 months after I ordained, um, or I don't know if it was 18 months, it was quite a while, I didn't listen to the radio. I'm renounced. I'm giving up all those worldly things. So I had no clue what was going on in the world. So I had this idea. Well, I had been told, don't get involved in politics. I mean, I wasn't about to be in a political party or anything like that. And then I think, you know, part of my, I guess, maturity as a nun and in my practice has been coming, and especially in recent years, the fact that you can't not uh, um, take action, you know, or do something. What, I'm going to sit around and watch global warming happen and, and make no contribution or, you know, not contribution to the, well, I probably am, but, you know, no, make no efforts. And so I thought, 
No, I had been in, you know, to actually fully embrace those areas that I feel passionate about. And this has been my journey now for some years and I'm much more comfortable now. I think it was very good at the beginning to sort of really focus as a nun on, you know, as a conscious of, you know, want to be a good nun. <laughs> and I think everyone's like that at the beginning. You want to be really good, but then you sort of find your own path within that. Um, and so I then thought, well, you know, I was already involved in women's interfaith, um, that I think anybody of any spiritual path is sort of responsible for the rest of the world. You know, no pressure, but, you know, we have that responsibility because we're living our spirituality, whatever we want to label that, whether it's a religion or not. And a lot of people are, are lost or <coughs> even worse, you know, <coughs> mental health issues and so forth. So, um, and I found, you know, in the women's interfaith network that I really miss in Sydney because it was about coming together and we'd spend a year on talking about oh, what does your faith say about education or the role of women or mysticism or we'd just pick a topic for the year or what's your favourite prayer and why and not and learning from each other that really also strengthened our own faith. So we became very good friends. Easy for me because um, also when, you know, back to when I was, um, <coughs> had requested ordination that, um, you know, then you tell the family. So I'd been raised in a family that, we were Catholic, yes, but it's just like, just be open to all religions, whatever makes you happy, etc. So I consequently come from a multi-faith family and my brother's Muslim, I'm Buddhist, most are Catholic or Anglican or some form of Christianity. And we all get on very well. <coughs> so we have our interfaith gatherings just at Christmas. And <laughs> You know, when my brother became Muslim, I said, so, you won't be celebrating Christmas, will you? He said, we will, sorry. <laughs> and he said, you Bud you're Buddhist, you wouldn't, would you? I went, oh, yeah, I will. <laughs> anyway, so, <clears throat> so I think it's, you know, showing that we can all come together with different views um, in a spirit of harmony and connection, and that's really important. So um, also in terms of... Um, my having worked in um, Aboriginal education or Indigenous education. And so, again, I, I was doing research in that area and I thought, okay, now I'm ordained, I won't be doing that. And <coughs> as soon as I had that thought, I got an email from my <laughs> um, abbot of Lamazoka Rinpoche and I was like, so, <laughs> keep on doing what you're doing and think of the benefit to humanity. So I thought that's really great. It's not just doing it for yourself, but think of the benefit for humanity because there's not many people, Buddhist in Australia, who are also very, um, well, I, I don't know. I've come across a few um, who are also very um, passionate about <coughs> how our spiritual values sit with the worldview of Indigenous people. And I did, when I was at the uni, come across some young people who said, I've lost my 
I've lost my um, spirituality, the spiritual tradition I grew up with because people were moved off their land. And so therefore I <coughs> find Buddhism is the closest to what I had. So those sorts of things inspire me to keep going in that area and to actually sit with elders and sit on country and get that sense of connectedness to country. <coughs> and of course, you know, I at Christmas time I was um, um, in Sydney, uh, a dear close friend had passed away and I was helping his wife um, plan the funeral and then the, I was um, one of the celebrants and Linda Burney was the other celebrant and so I spent a bit of time with her but part of that was saying, you know, what what should we do around, around the voice, around the referendum and Ariel mentioned this um, conversation that we're having, um, myself and Venerable Sujato with um, Ajahn Sujato with um, Noel Pearson on on um, Thursday. Um, so that's <coughs> saying, okay, how are we as as Buddhists um, responding to that? How are we? I guess you know, if we look at the Buddha in his time was quite radical to say the least. He was extremely radical for his time, wasn't he? So the Buddha, you know, cut across all the caste systems, invited everybody, even the untouchables, so-called the lepers, um, everybody. And you've got to think, I mean, the caste system isn't as much, but it's not completely gone in India. But also women, you know, whereas previously anyone who could engage in any sort of spiritual path would be of the Brahmin class, <coughs> which the Buddha was, but it enabled him to then really be quite radical and not only invite from all different castes and so forth, but also to or fully ordain women equally. And so that becomes another talking point um, for us as well in terms of saying, well, um, and I know the, you know the Theravadan tradition and the Tibetan tradition are in a sort of similar place in terms of um, the elders, shall we say, don't accept full ordination and yet we're all pushing for that and I know that it's alive and well in BSW, uh, you know, full ordination for women. So it's saying, you know, I sort of think, well, if Buddha was radical at that time, Buddha would be radical today, right? Because that was the role of Buddha, you know? to really just be totally in sync with reality but also have incredible courage to to do what needs to be done. And so in this day and age, I think Buddha would be an eco-warrior. Uh, I think Buddha would be <laughs> supporting a lot of changes that we're a bit tentative to have even in our own traditions and saying, okay, you know, get with the times. And so I think about in my tradition that the um, founder of FPMT, Lama Yeshi, um, his reincarnations, um, Tenzin Osul Hita, he was he left the monastery when he was 18, and along with um, Gomo Tuku, who's who's a musician, who's a rap musician, and t um, Osul trained in film, because he saw this is a way to reach the whole world, and in a time when um, you know, that these robes, robes might get in the way for people, given that, you know, in a sort of most recent census, most young people are saying, 
I've got a spirituality, but I don't trust those. I don't trust the traditional religions, and I, but I do have a sense of spirituality. And so that by having that approach of really being in touch with young people, um, or people of their age, like I was sort of 38, I think we can still classify them as young, right? <laughs> in comparison to myself, yes, he's definitely young. He's actually coming to Australia in, in December, but just going to um, Bendigo, because he runs these, what he calls, I think he calls them a habitat. <coughs> it's like a five-day happening. And so you don't, you know, the people of my age are saying, but I want to see the daily program. And it reminds me when I went to Central Australia, I led a, um, a tour to Central Australia to, to be with the Aboriginal elders in, in the early 90s. And people said, what's the program going to be? And it's just like, well, ju we're just going to be there and then the elders will be there and something will happen. And then they said, is there a toilet? And I went, oh, I better check. <laughs> yes, they've just built a toilet. <laughs> there is a toilet. <laughs> but, you know, you know, we like to have, you know, what's the schedule? <laughs> what's the, what are we going to be doing at 9 a.m.? Anyway, when you get into that environment and get into the flavour of it, you, it's so much richer because things happen more spontaneously. So I guess for me, they, they have been some turning points of realising I can be involved in the Australian religious response to climate change. I can be involved in the response to the voice and faith-based. And, um, you know, we had Arjun Sujato's, Bhante Sujato's um, article in the Statements from the Soul last year. We've all signed up for the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Um, so that sits more comfortably with me because it's being engaged Buddhism and that's what ever first attracted me to Buddhism was I, I, I read about, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh. I went along in Sydney to the Engage Buddhism Centre and so forth. So then, if um <coughs> you know, as I said, if you think about the teachings of the Buddha were quite radical for his time in that he had all the teachings that he could get from um, from the, the Hindu masters that he wanted. His, his search was for truth. Whatever truth is, that's the search. And realised that those Hindu teachers could only get him to a certain level. And then he realised, but there's more. And so he got those teachings and he had to as we know the story of, you know, he was with the five others that they were having a, you know, they were ascetes. And so for those six years of ascetic practices, and then he realised, if I keep going this way, I'm just going to die. I'm not going to become <laughs> enlightened. I'm going to die. And so then took sustenance, and that's, you know, when the others thought he had lost the plot, he'd given up, and so turned their backs. But out of that, the Buddha took from what he'd learned and went, went further. And so, you know, we follow those, um, the teachings of the Buddha today. And, you know, we're, f we're going, it's, it's showing the capacity of our mind, because that's the real turning point, that we turn our mind around 180 degrees. In fact, if you're talking about turning points, each moment of breath is like that. 
It's a turning point. It's a chance for something different. It is a new moment. We don't necessarily experience that new moment as a new moment, but every single moment is a new moment. You know, that the capacity to transform our minds is beyond our wildest dreams, beyond what we can comprehend. You know, the, our innate ability for wisdom, for compassion, for kindness, for joy, um, you know, for patience. And it's sort of like, as Buddhists, I think, we get a certain distance and then we think, wow, that's as good as it gets and we might plateau out a bit and then our practice might go a bit further or we might search elsewhere. But if we just keep at it, and what I find is that the more deeply we go into meditation, the more the teachings that we hear start to resonate um, in us. And then, you know, for myself and, and maybe, you know, for all of us, it's taking that into action, you know, we call Noble Path right action, of taking that into action. What can I do to be of benefit, to serve others? And uh, we were talking earlier today that it makes you feel happier. If nothing else, you feel happier. That's a, that's a you know, bonus. Um, and that anything that we do with a self-centered mind, just looking after number one, it has this narrowing of our mind. And we already have enough pressures and stresses and so forth, narrowing our mind until we can't be creative anymore. And so turning our attention outwards to others. I think, you know, ironically, you know, maybe it's not, not, not so much in WA, only because there wasn't much of a lockdown, but elsewhere during when there was a lockdown with COVID, what we saw um, was a lot of creativity, a lot of people finding different ways of making connections, the Italians singing out their balconies and the um, people in London applauding the, the nurses every Thursday morning, you know, and, and so forth from their homes. Um, people putting, you know, making preservatives for, for their community or offering freely the herbs they'd grown, putting artwork on their fences. Everyone got really creative. And that sense of what was important was our humanity, our shared connection, because underneath it all, you know, physically, as the Dalai Lama says, physically, mentally, emotionally, we are all the same as human beings. You know, w yes, we have different cultures. We have, even within Buddhism, we have Theravana, we have Mahayana, we have Vajrayana. But we're all, all of this is the Buddha's teaching, you know. And so we are, even as Buddhists, we're, we're operating from the same ground, <laughs> if you like. But then as human beings, we are all the same. That's how we can connect easily with each other because we know the experience of what it is to be human, the highs and the lows. But as Buddhists then, we teach us how to turn the lows into highs or how to say, we don't have to be stuck in that. We don't have to be stuck in our messes. We can, there is a way out of that and here's the way. And to be able to work on our minds is a precious thing that more than maybe any other religion at least um, shows us the, the capacity of our minds and how to achieve that. And that it's just a matter of us spending the time on the cushion, spending the time in the teaching, putting that into 
into integrating it into, I like to say our DNA, but I'm not quite sure if it works that way because it's the mind. So um, just getting technical about what's physical and what's not um, because we're dealing with mental factors. And I guess that's why everyone here, we all keep coming back because we know the benefit that we get from that. We know the, how much better we feel, how maybe we're inspired to do. Um, also, for myself, is being very much within the, um, you know, when I first was in, in getting into Buddhism and people say, but where are the female Buddhas? And then you go and you say, oh, actually, there's a few of them. <laughs> and so uh, we just had recently at our centre a consecration of our Tara altar, and I think pr probably out of all the Tibetan Buddhist um, deities, female form, Tara is the one. And um, she's known for the swift action. So the story's told that when Chenrezig, Arya Chenrezig, was training on the path as a bodhisattva, and said, if I ever lose my, you know, for one second, my compassion for all living beings, may my body split apart and, you know, uh, and my, you know, sort of split into a thousand pieces. And so he was engaging in um, a lot of activities to benefit the world and also in his own meditation practice, cultivating compassion. And then he had a look around and saw there's just as much suffering as there ever was. What impact does that have? It's a bit like Jesus Christ, you know, suffered on the cross. Did it do away suffering in the world? Absolutely not. You can say, I mean, I grew up with, with Jesus Christ, the heart of compassion, you know, the big bleeding heart of compassion. We all have that. But then, <coughs> it, similar, like Chen Rezig saying, just that moment of sadness tears came down his eyes and it said that out of one um, uh, out of one eye came green Tara out of the other one white Tara white Tara is a long life Tara and so that and Tara says don't worry I'll help you I've got the power of swift action because all the Buddhas are equally powerful um, however they manifest different aspects to help us to develop those different aspects. And so Tara made this, so she was actually, um, as a human, Yoshidawa, she made a commitment to always come back in human, in female form, so that women didn't have the idea that they can't become a Buddha, because that's what Tara got told, you can't become a Buddha, unless you were in a male, unless you're a, a monk. And so, we're going from the time of the Buddha who was quite radical and accepted everyone equally, male, female, whatever caste, whatever background, to um, all the overlays that we can say are cultural overlays where things have got a bit mixed up. And Tara came and said, don't worry, I'll always take female form. Ultimately a Buddha is beyond female form, male form. You know, becomes a bit like shall we say irrelevant or is that too much for us to cope with maybe it is I'm not sure but a Buddha takes a form that's of benefit to us so the Shakyamuni Buddha took that form so that be able to give the teachings in human form to us and demonstrated through his life how to become enlightened and 
in it such we're following in his footsteps and so um, so I guess that connects for myself and also from having you know I sort of thought when I ordained I always considered myself a feminist and here I am in um, <laughs> a system that doesn't allow full ordination <laughs> and blah 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 I'm not saying it was sexist in so many ways but in other ways it was like mm. and so now it's finding that place again and, and for me you know being involved with Sakudita Australia the Buddhist women's organization and with that internationally to um, as the mission of um, those who set it up Kama Lechi Sumo and Jetsuma Tenzin Palmo to really promote the position of women in Buddhism I mean this is a good, this seems almost more males than females. Am I correct? I like it. Most places I go, it's more, fe more females than, than males, but I think we're even Stevens here, or maybe more males even. Um, and that really has nothing to do with the Buddha's teaching in essence. What it has to do is what we do as a culture or as a variety of cultures in terms of putting those cultural overlays. Like we're told in the Tibetan tradition, you are not Tibetans. Don't try and dress well. I'm just, no, this is Shakyamuni Buddhas. Uh, <laughs> don't dress, don't dress, you know, you see people come to our centres where lay, lay women or wear the tubas, the Tibetan things, or people put on their altar the Tibetan um, style of, um, what we have, we do water bowl offerings and and instead we're told just get nice crystal glass that it's happy makes your mind happy so that we don't have to imitate another culture that's not where the practice is at the practice is at you know is being that inner being that making that inner transformation happen getting control of those crazy thoughts and negative emotions and that we can it takes effort but we can train our mind to cultivate the positive qualities and to reduce those negative ones you know that simply meditating on our breath won't eradicate those but it will get us into a calm enough state when we can apply analytical meditation to be able to investigate and to interrogate and dismantle if you like the anger and jealousy and pride and fear and all of these emotions that get in the way of us really coming into our true karma and so that for me is like that's a true what do you call it transformation of really understanding that we have power beyond what we think is capable sometimes I think the fear is that um, there's a saying about that that isn't there um, not that we have no power, that we're more powerful than we think we are. I can't remember the quote, but something like that. We're actually more powerful than we are and that we take individual responsibility. So at the point where I stop being a passive, you know, sort of let uh, somebody should do this and think every time I say somebody should, it should be me. Is that too many shoulds in one sentence? Every time I think somebody should do this, why don't I just do it if it's in my capacity, you know, because we can take a 
back seat or we can take a front seat. And I think Buddha is inviting us to well and truly be in the front seat, light years ahead, actually. Um, so one of the areas of interest, another area of interest to me has been the dialogue that the Dalai Lama's had with scientists, the scientists of the mind who, you know, the mind science is a very, what shall we say, very new um, science. It's only been around, what, 40 years, 30 years? And so you have people who, um, who are looking at, when we say mind, and then the whole debate is the mind must be the brain because we can measure the brain. But we know that the brain's something physical. So that when we're, when we're um, brain dead, which is when we die, when the um, functioning of the brain has ceased irreversibly, it's generally when we're declared dead, but that the mind is still present. And so that it can take one or two days or even longer for that mind consciousness to, to depart the body. And <coughs> so the Dalai Lama's been very interested in that and has asked all these lamas to be tested at, at death time and, and so forth. Um, ones who um, their minds stay active for um, weeks, sometimes longer. So this is a whole area of research that now the medics are saying, I'm not quite sure when death is. So this is at a sort of cutting edge also that the mind scientists are discovering what the Buddha taught. And then they present to the Dalai Lama and, and, and Dalai Lama goes, oh yes. <laughs> They're like, this is our latest discovery. Very good. So like you're catching up with the Buddha. But what is brilliant about it is being able to give the scientific evidence for the Buddha, what the Buddha taught. And if we put that in the Buddha's context and say, here's the scientific proof because that is what people don't want to, you know, in the broader world, don't want to necessarily know, oh, because the Buddha said, and even we, even the Buddha said, don't believe something just because I said it. If you can prove it wrong, chuck it out. And so the scientists are, are proving things in physics, in relational <coughs> physics, uh, quantum physics, in the mind sciences that the Buddha observed and taught. And it's like, how could you have observed that without all the modern technology the science has had? So there's you know, other technologies going on that we have access to just as the Buddha did. How did the, how did the Buddha t be, was able to talk about atoms and subatomic particles and without you know, Rutherford coming along and discovering the atom? How did that happen? So it's a very interesting area to not just to say, oh, now we can prove what the Buddha taught, but to show if the scientists are looking for what's fact, what's real, and the Buddha was on about what's real, what's fact, and the two are uh, agreeing with each other, then it sort of allays doubts where there might be doubts because it's, yeah, this is really... I remember seeing one documentary where they went to the bottom of the ocean, um, Marinaeus Trench, is that how you say it? Is that supposed to be the deepest part of the ocean, anybody know? What was it? 
Oh, yeah, I, Marinara. Yeah, I can never say it. Anyway, so this documentary was showing people diving down there and they found life. Like nobody had ever gone down that far and they found life forms. And because there was one in one of the sutras by the Buddha, I think it's the Sangata Sutra, where the Buddha said, nobody has got to the depth, uh, to the deepest part of the ocean. And I was like, yes, they have, Buddha. <laughs> of course, they hadn't at that point. Um, and so minor technicality, you can say, well, now, now people have. Um, it wasn't... Um, you could say that was a metaphor for saying we haven't discovered all there is to discover. Like we haven't got to the depths of the depths of the ocean. There's more in there, more out there. We haven't got to the depths of outer space or the different universes that exist. Um, so it's a very, very, it's the only thing I found <laughs> in what I read that comes close to, oh, you might be able to, because it's soon as you say, if you can refute it, you look for something you can refute, don't you? <laughs> um, but you don't, but I do. <laughs> and it's the only tiny bit of something. And of course, the Buddha would see that today and go, well, of course you can get to the deepest point. Look, they've done it. You know, it's rather obvious. Yeah. Um, so I guess for me, you know, going on the spiritual path, Buddhism has totally, the Dharma has totally transformed my life. My friends who knew me beforehand will assert that, that I'm a much nicer person, at least. Um, and I couldn't see a life now without the Dharma in my life. You, you, I mean, once you've met the Dharma, I think, you know, there's no turning back. I think they should have signs. Be, beware, all you who enter here, your life will be changed forever. You know, that would be a good sign to have. Um, but maybe not beware, just your life will be changed forever. So the Buddha does invite us to, to really use the capacity of our mind, which is limitless. And so we're not using limitless mind yet uh, because it's limitless, right? And so, but to expand that capacity then we can be as creative, we can be as loving, we can be as kind, we can be as scientific. And um, it's like there's no limits for what the mind can think, can do. As it, you know, as Buddha said, anything that is to be known is known by a Buddha. And it seems like you know, us humans have just got a little fraction of that. But you know, always the opening for more and more and more. As long as it's factual, you know, we don't go off on some crazy deluded path and um, have all these fantasies that cannot be validated by a valid cognizer, by a mind that um, understands reality. Okay. So maybe I'll pause there and see if there's any questions, comments, any anything anyone would like to ask or say, debate. See, we have a debating tradition, so the Tibetan, is it, do you do debating in the Theravadan tradition? We do debating, it's big time. Actually, in the, in the monasteries, they do this debating physically, where they, I don't know if you've seen films or anything with, or even seen Tibetan monks, and they go, chow, chow. And it's, it's a very organized system of, of debate. 
And I used to say it's a non-contact physical sport until I saw some geshis. They're the ones who've trained for 20 years. There are um, you know, the 20 years in the philosoph philosophical texts, five main philosophical texts. And incredibly smart. And we ha they had a debate in Adelaide and they were pushing each other out of the way. And I thought, oh, I thought this was supposed to be non-contact. You know, <laughs> we're not supposed to touch each other. Anyway, they were doing it. They were all good mates, so they were having a ball showing us how to debate. So maybe non-contact if we're going to debate. <laughs> Anyone, any questions, comments? Oh, venerable? Yeah. Venerable? Yeah. Where's that mic? Here, coming? here. At the back here. At the back. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for coming to give us a talk today. Pleasure. I'm going to ask something, yeah. but I don't know whether it's appropriate or not. I'll we'll find out, won't you we? You don't have to answer if you don't feel like it. Enough. Okay. Okay, yeah. Because you mentioned about Noel Pearson, you know? Yes. Yeah, and then you, you, you mentioned about the, that we're going to have a discussion this, I think this Thursday, on the 10th, you know? Yes, Thursday. Yeah, it's yes. about the voice. You know? Yes. Yeah. So, um, what's your opinion of the voice, about the voice? Um, Can I ask? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm... I'm I'm totally supportive of the voice because I think, you know, we are all in Australia and um, allowing the original inhabitants of the land, of obviously their descendants, mm. to have a, a say about things that affect their life. And you could say why they particularly... Um, what do we call it, singled out for that because there are a lot of policies that affect Indigenous people. And, you know, if you listen from my point of view, and that why not allow an equal say in things, it's only in relation to things that affect them. Just like in the 70s when, you know, I was part of the women's movement in Australia and saying you know, when they established a women's, um, women's um, department or de what was it? Department for Women or whatever it was called. Susan Reed, what was it? Uh, no, it, the Equal Rights Commission and Affirmative Action came along as well. But this was, yeah, the um, Department for Women, Prime Minister's Department for Women. So that had a period of time that it was necessary to have that in place. So I think we keep this in mind that this is a step to allow Indigenous people to actually have a voice, to not be the, it's an, an advisory thing to, to the parliament of saying, well, this is what, you want to put these policies in place or this is, it won't work or this is how it will work there's been a lot of history of government intervention that hasn't worked when community-run things have. So it's really allowing the space for those dialogues, I believe. Thank you. Also, do you think Australia's been colonised for over 200 years now, no? and now we are a lapdog to a superpower. No? We're a what dog? We are a lapdog to, to a superpower. I'm not sure which one. There's many. <laughs> There's many. It makes me feel like a, how do I say? Insult. It, sorry, I felt. I felt it. You know, that. I mean, from other people, other, other people. Okay, 
they look at us as just like a being manipulated. You know. well, I, I don't know yeah. what I think Australia is well regarded in the international level. So, yeah, well, I mean, we've got all international interests, but you say we live in a global society, global really society, mm. you know. I don't want to get too political. This is a Dharma talk, but <laughs> <laughs> so I, I did invite I, I it. Didn't I, 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 don't I did invite it, right? <laughs> I think, well, if you think about dependent arising and the fact we are all interdependent, we're globally interdependent. And so you can't avoid that. In fact, it'd be crazy to. Yeah. Look, thank you for the, for the talk. And, and not wanting to sound ignorant, but, you know, in here, the world just revolves around the Buddhist Society of Western Australia. Yeah. Where, where, whereabouts are you situated? Um, in Kensington, so High Agriva Buddhist Centre. Oh, yeah. In um, Banksia Terrace in Kensington. And very good location. One, one end of the street is um, protected bushland for the flora and fauna. The other end's the river. So, short street. Are there many nuns there or not? There's or three of us who live there. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And if we had more rooms, we'd have more, but there's only three bedrooms. <laughs> <laughs> and did you say before you're based on, on Tibet, you're not Theravada? No, that's correct. Tib Tibetan yeah, Buddhist. Tibetan yeah. Buddhism. Oh, yeah. um, just to mention, I'm on the Australian Sangha Association Committee, so I sit on that along with Arjun Brahm. Yeah. Venerable Metaji and uh, yeah. Arisavira and other, like we're all the traditions and we've yeah. been working together for you years. <laughs> you, you would know of, um, oh, I forget the, it's the, the great stupa anyway. Yes, I know the Bendy great stupa. Yeah, yeah, great yeah. Of compassion, yeah. And uh, w oh, I'm from over that way, I go over that way every oh, year okay. and I end, up, I end up You go there. there. So, yeah. yeah. No, it's Scratch my head a bit about... Uh, uh, with with different, you know, I go to meditation and that there, but there's so many different. Yeah, it's not vastly different, but it is. It is. It is yeah, I think we. Yeah. You know, yeah. So but they're doing wonderful work over there for Buddhism too. Yeah, uh, yeah it's amazing, isn't it? The, uh, they've got the whole sort of um, Bendigo Council Tourism Victoria on board, and it's really um, again, you know, creating a space and the vision for that from Lama Yeshi was also to make that interface. So we've got St. Francis statue there alongside Avalokiteshvara, <laughs> alongside yeah. Kuan Yin statue and so forth. So yeah. it's really, really wonderful. No, it's yeah. uh, wonderful. I remember being there in the 70s when it was first mooted and yeah. um, by Ian Green and, um, and, <laughs> and all that was said was yelled that That'll never bloody happen. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and look at it. I mean, he didn't think amazing, it would happen in his amazing. lifetime. Amazing. And it's been wonderful for yeah, it's, uh, it's tourism, yeah. but also it's wonderful for Buddhism. Yeah. It's uh, so many people. So I'll just say we're going to be building a stupa down in Bunbury at our centre there too, which is nowhere near as big as that. But it will be near a roundabout where you can see from all the streets. So that's going to be a bit of transformation for Bunbury. We're very excited about that. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you. Um, the Buddha said that every suffering comes from attachment. Suffering comes from action. Attachment. Attachment, yes. Attachment. Yeah. 
And I'd love to hear your views on how can you love without attachment? How can you love without attachment? I know. Yeah, I was, I was mentioning earlier today that one of my teachers says there's no such thing as unconditional love in samsara. <laughs> Check up. I mean, we talk about unconditional love, but if we think that that genuine true love is what? Is, is wishing for um, others to be happy. So it's not, give me what I want, and then I love you, which is, you know, that's a crude way of saying a uh, love of attachment. Um, I, I remember reading in, I don't know, maybe the early 80s, a book that was called, I, I don't even know if I can find it again, Is It Love or Is It Attachment? And actually trying to look at, you know, what's the distinction between in a relationship this is looking at love or attachment. I think we've always, while we're in samsara, got some attachment. In other words, some self-cherishing mind that's, that's look also looking after our soul. I, I, I do have to say that when before I ordained, because I said, you know, mentioned that there was these many times when it was like, oh, now, now, now. And really when I look back, it's like, that time I wasn't in a relationship. That would have been a good time, but I obviously wasn't ready. So the time when I w it just sort of took me over, I was in a good, healthy <laughs> relationship. And I thought, oh, well, I can't say that I left the relationship <laughs> because it was terrible. But my poor partner was really angry because how can you say she left me because of Buddha? You know, it'd be much easier to say she left me because she fell in love with someone else, you know. <laughs> but to say it was because of Buddha was a bit hard. <laughs> anyway, that's a side, a side talk. So, yeah, we have to discern for ourselves what our motivation is. So if our motivation is, may you, may you be happy. And I guess that's, that's why I think, for me, I got to a point and I can't say I wasn't, you know, there was no attachment or desire in that relationship. But I got to a point where I was more concerned about my partner's happiness than my own. And I think when you can do that, um, then you can say, okay, that's, that's a more true, coming from a true, true love. But then we have different types of love, don't we? Because there's that love. We talk about, you know, I mean, in, in the Tibetan tradition, often the example has been like the mother has for an only child but you can't say that there's no attachment if it's an only child, that there's no attachment there. But what it's saying is that amount of, of love, but having that same love for the one being, for all beings, or for whoever you're expressing that, that love towards. So as the one of attachment, as soon as I say attachment, my hand goes like this. It's a grasping mind, isn't it? It's like what I want, that's the mind of attachment, whereas the love is, may you be happy. It's more open. really sure what I'm going to say but I have this feeling inside when I hear um, I don't
don't listen to a lot of political things, but when I heard about the voice, yeah, I can't believe that as a as a race we have to give other people we have to have the referendum on whether other people can have a voice. I just can't believe that we even have to do that. 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 Yeah, I get it. And yeah. I feel I feel great pain. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know where it. What's no, but missing. I think I think you're right. Uh, what's missing? I, is I, I just don't. I think what is missing is a shared humanity. You know, uh, a sense of all embracing, mm, like the Buddha. Buddha had even regard for all. You know, if if everyone was treated equally in Australia, then there would be a different scenario. But we know that's not true. We know that during well, at least I was in Queensland, but tapping into the New South Wales uh, Multicultural Forum for infor information around COVID and so forth, and that many communities felt left out in that conversation because of language and because of not just the way, you know, even when things were translated, not taking into account cultural diversity. So until we can reach such a point as we're all embracing and, and allowing for that, you know, we're a very diverse, I mean, we're a very diverse community. Australia's a very diverse community. Buddhists are a very diverse community. All the different, um, you know, the time Vietnamese, Laotian, um, Cambodia, you know, sort of Thai, Tibetan, Nepali. Um, don't want to leave anyone out, Korean. <laughs> you know, we're very, very diverse representation, and yet we can all, because, you know, we can all come together in a united way. Or maybe we say we can't, but that's, I think, also, I find, is a, is a mission for us, and that's what um, part of our conversations of, of those of us talking around the voice or anything, is let's make sure we're actually talking about inclusivity of everybody. So, yeah. so, um, so when, you know, your people like yourselves are discussing this, aren't you coming from that viewpoint, though? Like, I know everyone's diverse, but how, how much... Yeah, well, I mean, how far, how it's trying to be receptive to yeah, yeah, what people want, you know. Yeah. It's trying to, yeah. I don't know. I just see it as like, I don't know. Sorry, I, it just upsets me so much. Yeah. Because it's like condition. We just got to keep our conditioning. We just got to keep, you know, trawling through it. However, it's like, you know, where's <coughs> like, I don't know. I can't. I don't. Can't yeah. Express what I'm trying to say. Yeah. yeah. Does that get mentioned a lot? Like, you know, this is just wrong. You know. We're oh human, exactly. Why yeah. Why, why yeah. Why can't we start? We start with we are all human. Built that way, yeah. You know, yeah. I think, and this is this is um, when the Dalai Lama said, physically, mentally, emotionally, we're all the same. The other part of the message was differences of culture, of language, of skin color, of culture, of tradition. All of that is secondary. You know, underneath it all, we're all we have a shared <coughs> humanity. Yeah, so coming from our shared humanity. Because also, as the Buddha said, not just care, f you know, I mean, when we take the precept of not killing or not doing any harm, that's to any living being. If we can't get it right for humans, how on earth are we going to look after all the other species as well, right? 
Yeah, I feel your heart there. Yes. So tonight's about turning point. Yeah. And I was just wondering, what was your turning point? You said you left your partner. So if you left your partner for... Oh, so I, I think it's many, many turning points because if I... Th you know, that's why I mentioned that I first had the aspiration to be ordained at a young age. I hung out with the Catholic nuns because that's what I knew and I thought I was going to be a Catholic nun. Then I got disillusioned with the church and I was no longer wanting to be a Catholic <laughs> nun because only because of some of the things the church was doing, and we don't need to go into that. But and then, so, but I kept searching and searching, so, but I was always searching. I, I, I happened to always be searching in um, Eastern traditions, Sufism, Hinduism, read the Vedas, this and that, until I found my s what I consider my spiritual home. So I knew I was looking for, for something, but it wasn't like, for me it wasn't like, suddenly, ta-da. But what happened before, like the, mm, when I knew it was irreversible about what the wish to be ordained was that I would sit in meditation and I'd be crying, crying, crying. I was like, why am I crying? Why am I crying? Because I wasn't feeling sad. I wasn't feeling grief or anything. And it was like, and the answer I got was, this is your truth. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and my truth was, to be ordained, right? And so I'd be, and then I'd be crying more. <laughs> it's like, oh, to be ordained, oh, more crying. <laughs> because, you know, and so for me, that was the biggest turning point in my life because I, I went from, you know, being a, a lay person, being a, yes, I, I'd been a Buddhist for a long time. Um, so it wasn't, it wasn't the newness of the of the Dharma, but it was this, yeah, this is your truth. This is who you're meant to be. And I think that's our journey in a in a Dharma. We become more and more who we're meant to be. And whatever that is, it's not going to be everyone's bit. And as I say, somebody's got to have the kids, somebody's got to have the babies. Um, <laughs> it's not for everyone to be ordained or to be ordained in this life. For example, for me, I grew up in a family um, my parents were in musicals, so we grew up in theatre, we grew up all singing, all dancing, right? And so as, I've, um, as I felt that, you know, after the crying, I thought, okay, I better give up music. You know, I'd given up directing theatre and, and being in theatre, but I was still um, in choirs, and so I thought, I better give that up now. And but it was time. It didn't feel like, oh, that's the hardest thing for me to do. I met a young woman just last week and we we're having this conversation and she was talking to me about really having an aspiration to ordain. But she said, I can't give up music. Because she was saying to me, how did you give up music? And I said, well, it was just time, you know. It wasn't um, a difficult choice for me. That so I think the turning points come not just out of the blue, but they come as a culmination. At least that's the experience in my life. So you could say a lot of things end up in that point. But I have to say, I think the very first real turning point in my life, and I'll probably think of some more, but one profound time. So it was such a simple thing, but profound. Um, 
was in the 80s and I, I also trained as a Feldenkrais practitioner, which is a body therapy. And so during the training, I was assisting the trainers. So they came from the States and they were training us. And so the head trainer s said to me this day, could you do, and I can't even remember what he was asking me to do. I remember that in my mind, I was sort of like, yeah, Frank, what do you want? I mean, fortunately, I didn't look like that. <laughs> I didn't say that, but that's how it felt inside. And then I, then I said to myself, drop it. Why are you reacting like that? Just drop it. So I did. And I felt such a buzz. I thought, that's liberation. That's freedom. I have a freedom to choose how to act in any moment. I was so blown out, I couldn't even <laughs> answer him. I was like, oh, wow, that's liberation. I'm not talking, you know, forever liberation. <laughs> but those moments where suddenly you realise the way you've been acting, you can, in a flash, you can drop and it's gone. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing when it happens? That's liberation. Would you say that you're the happiest you've ever been? Like, does a it absolutely. improve every year? Do you think, oh, I'm getting close? No, to no, last year wasn't the greatest year in my life. I don't know why. <laughs> so far this year's been pretty good. But I think it's, you know, we're in samsara. And so we have suffering and we have happiness, but we have tools for when we're experiencing difficulties and problems. How, do, how, can, how can I get myself out of this? What tools can I use from all of the Dharma techniques I have in the toolkit? What can I use? And so I'm not disempowered in those moments. I can say, okay, something to deal with here, which is a freedom too, right? Because you know you have the freedom to deal with it. You don't have to be stuck in it, right? Of course, if there are real psychological stucknesses and that requires a therapist or whatever, that's part of what's available to us, you know. Do you still get angry? Um, I don't experience the intensity of anger that I used to experience. I don't have highs and lows like I... It so sounds like I've become very boring, you know. <laughs> I do get excited about things. Um, but, you know, I don't, I don't, I notice the anger and I can, I can go, okay, this is not a good look, you've got to drop it, you've got to deal with it rather than let it become full-blown. Yeah, definitely. Just ask my friends from way back, they'll tell you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Because you're not uh, living in the everyday world with people, do you think if it was different? I'm living in the real world with oh, people. Sorry, but like, yeah, okay. Well, I still, I still come up against. I mean, I, s I have a lot of interactions with my family. No, my family, we all get on very well, um, so they don't press my buttons. But um, do you think the environment? You still, you still face challenges in life, like everybody else. You know, before I ordained. Um, the senior nun advising me said, 
lay men have lay men problems, lay women have lay women problems, nuns have nun problems, monks have monk problems, lamas have lama problems, you know. <laughs> but it's it's having the tools for how to deal with, with those. I'm by no means I, I'm still very much like everybody else a work in progress, but I can see the progress and I think when I ever first started seeing the progress, that's what really like keep going, this is good, you know. know that it has changed. Absolutely. Yeah, anyway. And is changing. Yeah. Long way to go. No, that's fabulous. Yeah. Cause, but you see, because I've had experiences where I found that, um, you know, I thought I'd, I'd be dealing mm. with things in a certain way because I know and yeah. people who really did press my buttons and I was being very Buddhist-like yeah. in my approach. But yeah. as, you know, as I sort of got older and things were happening, I found that you know, deep inside, I still had a lot of hurt towards that yes. person that hadn't come through. You yeah. know, and it's only started coming through now, and I'm yeah. you know, nearly 70. So yeah. and, um, uh, but I'm able to resolve it in a different way. But it's exactly. Very yeah. Interesting yeah. Because I think we go to deeper and deeper levels of that. As you said, there's still hurt there mm. that you thought had been dealt with. But I think this is what happens that we, we deal with something on a maybe, first of all, on a surface level, you know, at least we can zip the lip and sit on the hands and then but we've got to deal with it in the mind and then deeper levels of that more and more is is ongoing so that's showing progress you know variable regarding the earlier question you know attachment brings suffering yes and love? Okay, yeah. On the, don't you think? On the no, love brings happiness. That's so it's like, if, yeah. I, if I say to you, may you, or think, I don't have to say it to you, may you be well, may you be happy, may you have the causes for happiness, I'm thinking this towards you, that's love. Right, that's love. But if I say, um, I'll only love you if you take out the garbage, I don't know, something, then that's attachment, isn't it? No. Or I'll only love you, I will love you as much as you fulfill whatever need it is that I have that I feel like needs to be f met. Sorry. Sorry, what I yeah I see what you mean. Okay, what I meant was attachment brings suffering. Yes. Okay? On the surface and the love, you know, that, you know. That on the surface. Uh, on, on the surface, that seems ridiculous. And oh, there's love and attachment brings suffering. You know, okay. That's on the surface truth. Okay. Yeah. But I think the Buddha was looking into more deeper thing. It much more deeper. Yes. Thing. It's the heart connection Can we have some, oh. with each other. You know. Yeah. We it all is, have that. It's the deeper thing, okay? Yeah. He was probably having in mind of the, the characteristics, you know. It's um, impermanent. Things are always changing, you know, not permanent. You know. And then if you keep having that, you know, you know, and, that, you know yeah. and there's also no self, and that's suffering. Suffering, that's, I regard the suffering as stress, you know. So if we, if we keep, if we, we, we can have attachment, okay, but we have to bear that in mind then, it will lessen our suffering. 
Don't you think? Attachment will lessen our suffering. Is that yeah, what I'm getting? Attachment brings suffering, okay? Yeah. Yeah, and then the, the guy was saying no, that. No, we. Th I think we think that at you know if we act on our desires, that it's going to not bring suffering. We think that, but it's a temporary thing, isn't it? So that you know. I desire chocolate. I don't actually, I don't eat chocolate. But let's use it as an example. I desire chocolate and then I have the chocolate. Mm. I have a craving for chocolate. That's intense desire. Mm. So then I have the chocolate and then what happens? What goes up must come down, mm. you know? Mm -hmm. And so either you're going to have more chocolate and get incredibly sick mm. or, you know, what's your alternative? Have mm. something else instead. So these are temporary things. We think that, which is how desire works mm. and how we want then more mm. because it's a mind of attachment. Mm -hmm. But a mind of love is, is very open. And as you said, it's a deeper thing. It's more what we already feel connected heart to heart already, you know, mm. in our shared humanity. Lots of things to think about. <laughs> um, shall we call it there for tonight? Okay, so thank you very much. Um, we can dedicate all the positive energy, all the love we've shared, um, all the wisdom that we've shared to continue to grow in our minds and the minds of all those we encounter. Thank you very much. So our um, in the Tibetan sadhu 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 is lexo lexo lexo. So lexo lexo lexo. <laughs> yeah, it's usually like that. Lexo lexo lexo. <laughs> shall we give it all? Shall we all give this a go? Shall we start? One, two, three. Lexo lexo lexo. <laughs> Thank you.